The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the ninth chapter, reading verses 10 to 13. From verse 10 to verse 13, in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now uh, we are considering once more the great uh, message that is found here in this ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. We have here, as you observe, a series of incidents, one following chronologically after the other. The first was the case when four men brought a friend of theirs on a mattress. The man was paralyzed and couldn't move. They brought him in order that our Lord might speak unto him and might heal him. And you remember, we saw that their faith was such that nothing could keep them back. They climbed up onto the roof and tore a hole in it and let down the men into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he proceeded to deal with him in his own way and manner. That was the first incident which we considered together. Then after that had finished, we are told that Jesus passed forth from thence and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. We considered that together last Sunday evening. And now we are told this, that it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, and the other Gospels, especially Luke, make it quite clear that it was in the house of Matthew, this very man whom he'd called. Matthew clearly invited him immediately into his house in order to have a meal. And being a publican, he probably invited also these other publicans whom we were told were there, and sinners. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now we must be clear about our terms here. A publican uh, was a man who, though a Jew, had taken on a job, a post, under the Roman Empire. The Romans, as you remember, had conquered this land of Palestine. And as was their custom, they proceeded to levy taxes from the people. They always did that. Wherever they went and conquered, they levied taxes upon the conquered people. And these taxes, of course, had to be collected. And there was a sense in which it, there's a sense in which it's true to say that a Jew could do nothing which was more despicable than to become a collector of taxes. Well, such was this man Matthew. He was a publican, a collector of taxes. He was collecting taxes from his own people on behalf of this power that had conquered them. So he and all like him were regarded as what we came to call in the last war as quislings, men 
who in order to make a little money more or less sell themselves to the very power that has conquered them in such an unjust manner. Well, now, Matthew was a publican, and we are told that he invited our Lord into those, and many other publicans came and joined them at the meal. But not only that, sinners also. Now, it's very important that we should get the full significance of this word likewise. When the Bible talks about sinners like this, it means an exceptionally blatant sinner. The sort of people that everybody would call a sinner. You see, people then did exactly the same as we tend to do now. We divide up people into good and bad. Actually, we're all bad, according to the scriptures. But uh, it's customary for us to divide ourselves up into good and bad. And when we talk about a bad man, we mean a particularly bad one. If we do use the term sinner at all, well, we mean somebody that is obviously a sinner. If you see a poor man who goes home drunk three or four times a week, you'd say, a sinner, a bad man. And you talk about bad women. Now, they use these terms in exactly the same way. So when we are told that there were many sinners present, in addition to the publicans, it means many notorious sinners. Many blatant, obvious, open, riotous sinners. The, the worst kind of people that you can find in any society. And what we are told, therefore, is that as our Lord went there into the house with Matthew, a number of publicans and people of that kind gathered together and sat down with him and with his disciples. And it led to this incident. The Pharisees saw that. Who are they? Well, they were the religious teachers. This was a group, a body of people that had come into being for a couple of centuries or so, these men were the men who were experts in the Jewish law and expert teachers of religion, the Jewish religion and morality. That's what they were. They were not priests, but they were teachers. The Pharisees and the scribes are generally put with them, but they had the particular job of looking, looking after the manuscripts. The Pharisees were, therefore, preeminently the teachers, the moral, ethical teachers, the people who, as they thought, were expounding the law of God to them. As we shall see, they had certain other characteristics, but that is the main and the chief truth concerning them. Well, now, they saw this. They saw this young teacher, this new teacher, who was attracting such attention to himself by the miracles which he worked, and who had been up on a mountain preaching an extraordinary sermon. They saw that he not only went into the house of a publican, but that he was very ready to allow other publicans and sinners to come in and to join and to eat and drink with him. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. But go and learn what this scripture means. And then he quoted to them from the book of the prophet Hosea in the sixth chapter and the sixth verse. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Tell me what that means, he says. Give me an exposition of it. And then he adds, for I am not come to call the righteous 
but sinners to repentance. Now then, why do I call attention to this incident? Well, my reason for doing so is exactly the same as my reason for talking about the two previous incidents. All these are together just to teach us one great big thing, and that is how to know the blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alone can give us. We saw that about the first man. The emphasis there was upon the right approach. And then our Lord deals with him. The second was our Lord calling a man. Seems quite different, came to the same thing. Our Lord has a call which he gives to everybody, however they may come to him. He says the same thing ultimately. Now that we were considering last Sunday evening. And we spent our time there in considering the nature, the character of the call, and the reasons why we should all respond to it. But now tonight we are dealing with a different subject. Ultimately the same, but as a different aspect. The question tonight is this. To whom is that call addressed? Who are meant to be Christians? What is a Christian? What makes a man a Christian? That's the subject that we've got before us tonight. The call last Sunday night, tonight, to whom is the call addressed? To whom does it apply? Who should be concerned about these things? Or if you want it still more generally, what is Christianity? And for whom is it? Here's the question. The question of questions. The question that not only determines how we live in this world, the question that determines our eternal destiny. This of all questions in this uncertain world in which we live is the most urgent. Here is the question, I say, that determines a man's eternal destiny. We can't afford to make mistakes about this. And yet, you see, the tragedy is that people do make mistakes about it. There are many who make mistakes about Christianity. We've seen that the two previous Sunday nights we shall see exactly the same thing tonight. That's why people are not Christians. Because they've got the wrong idea as to what Christianity is and for whom it is. In other words, there are so many who are in the same position as these Pharisees with whom our Lord had to deal on this occasion. Now, those of you who are familiar with these four Gospels will know that uh, a great deal of the space taken up in the, in the four Gospels is taken up with our Lord's dealings with these Pharisees and scribes. Haven't you often felt really tired and weary of them? They kept on bothering him. He had to spend so much of his time in arguing with them and refuting them, dealing with their questions, saying things about them. They dogged his footsteps wherever he went. Indeed, we can say this. That of all the classes of people who ever came near our Lord or who ever listened to him, the Pharisees misunderstood him and his teaching more than any others. Of all the people who came anywhere near him, they were the ones who most completely misunderstood it. And because they misunderstood him and his teaching, they never became followers. They never became Christians. They never received the blessing. At the end of his life, you'll find it in chapter 21 of this Matthew's Gospel, our Lord turned on them one day and he said, Yes, he said, you Pharisees and scribes, 
I want to tell you, he said, that the publicans and the harlots enter into the kingdom before you. They've come in, he says, you remain outside. Why did they? Well, as I'm saying, it was because of this basic confusion of theirs with regard to what Christianity is and for whom it's meant. And that is why I'm holding this matter before you tonight. There are so many in this position still. There are many people in the world tonight who are not Christians, very largely because they think they are Christians. We are living in desperate days, my friends. I therefore mustn't mince my words. There are many people who think that they're members of the Christian church who are not Christians for this same reason, as I hope to show you. These people, as I want to show you, thought they were all right. That's why they stumbled at our Lord's teaching. That's why they remained outside his kingdom. There are many such tonight. There are many people who know nothing about the blessings of Christ, the blessings of God through Christ. Why? Well, because they've made this initial error with regard to it. But I'm not only concerned about them. There are others who make the same mistake, but from the other angle. It's a curious thing, this. There are many poor sinners in the world tonight who are not Christians just because they feel that Christianity isn't for them. They're making the same mistake as the Pharisees. The Pharisee and the sinner, these extremes, are really guilty of exactly the same thing as I want to try to show you. And I, I want to address both parties present in this congregation tonight. How do you know there are two parties present, says somebody? I know it perfectly well. They're always present in every congregation. There are always people who think they are Christians and who have to be shown that they have never been Christians. There are other people who feel and say, if only I hadn't been what I've been, if only I hadn't sinned as I've sinned, I might have been a Christian and got this blessing, but I can't. I'm outside. It's not for me. They're always present and you're here tonight. Let me speak these words to you. For that's the very question that our Lord deals with here. He takes up this subjection of the Pharisees to his receiving publicans and sinners. And he deals with it in the way that he alone can. Did you notice? He puts his answer to them in three ways. He first of all uses a picture, an illustration. And then having done that, he puts a piece of scripture to them as I've pointed out to you. And then, uh, having done that, he makes a very plain statement to them. Look at it. Here it is. Hearing their objection to his receiving publicans and sinners, he says, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. He said, People uh, who are quite well, they don't need a doctor. When you're perfectly well and brimming over with health, you don't go to a doctor. Doctors are not for men who are well. The doctors... Now, for people who are ill, as a picture, you see. He's dealing with them in the form of a picture. Then the second, as I point out, is he refers them to that uh, portion of Scripture in Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, now, what do you think that Scripture means? I will have mercy, not sacrifice. What is the prophet Hosea teaching at that point? Well, it's just this. 
You see, the children of Israel were always getting into trouble. And he's addressing them on that. He says, you're in trouble because of your sin. And he says, your real fundamental trouble is that you don't understand the real meaning of your own religion and of your own faith. You were ever ready to rush with your burnt offerings and sacrifices to the temple. That isn't what God wants. He wants a little mercy in your hearts. He wants a little righteous living. It's no use you're running to the temple with your sacrifices if you're not treating your servants properly or people who've offended against you. Mercy, not sacrifice. I don't want more of your burnt offerings, he says. I want a little right spirit in you. Oh, says our Lord, how do you interpret that? What does that mean? And then to make it quite clear that they've understood what he's saying, he puts it explicitly in, the, in these words. I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Very well, let's take these three statements of his and let me try to put them in the form of the following principles. There's something very alarming about these words. My first principle is this. There are certain people to whom our Lord does not call. I am not come to call the righteous. There are certain people to whom he has nothing to say while they remain what they are. I am not come to call the righteous. It's a terrifying thing, this. That there are some people to whom the very Son of God, the Savior of the world, as it were, has got nothing to say. He can make no contact with them. He doesn't call them. He's not interested in them. What sort of people are these? Well, they're clearly not Christians, you see. But why not? Well, because of this attitude of theirs, typified by these Pharisees. What is it that characterizes this attitude? God, give us grace to examine ourselves, every one of us. Remember, I say we are dealing here with highly religious people. The Pharisee was a man who could say quite honestly, I fast twice in the week, I give a tenth of my goods to feed the poor. And they were righteous men. They did not commit certain flagrant, obvious sins. They were ethical, they were moral, they were religious teachers. And yet our Lord says he's got nothing to say to them. They're outside his kingdom. They don't belong to him. They are not going to receive any blessings from his hand. Well, why? Well, because they're Pharisees. Now, what are, what are their characteristics? Well, let's divide it up like this, as our Lord puts it. They're completely wrong in the first place in their view of themselves. View of themselves. What do you mean, says someone? Well, he says, they that are whole have no need of a physician. He means those who are healthy, those who are strong, those who are well. What's he talking about? Well, he means this. He's talking about the type of men who really believes that all is well with him. Nothing wrong with him. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any physician. He's boasted and never, been, never had a day's illness in my life. Never had any other bottle of medicine. Never needed it. Always been perfectly all right. Now, there are people like that in a spiritual sense. They're not aware that there's anything wrong with them. Why, they say, I really can't call myself a sinner. I don't know that I do anything wrong. I try to live a good life. I try to help other people. That's their view of themselves. Now, there are thousands 
not to say millions of such people in the world tonight. You see, you can divide up society. There are some poor creatures in this great city of London tonight who are living in filth and squalor in a moral and in a spiritual sense. Ah, oh, but these Pharisees are far removed from that. Who are these? Well, these are your highly respectable people. These are not in slums. You're much more likely to find them in suburbia, in a spiritual sense, and in other senses perhaps as well. Why? Well, they're people, do you see, who've got their code. They've got their standard. They don't know what all this business about religion is. Why, if a man lives a good life, what more is necessary? And they do. Nobody can point a finger at them, pay all their bills. Everything seems all right, bringing up their children well, respectably, nice, send them to schools. There's nothing wrong. You can't point a finger. There's nothing that you can criticize. And they really believe that everything is all right. Their view of religion. That you make yourself righteous by doing good. By living a good life. By perhaps attending a place of worship and conforming to certain rules and regulations. That they really believe is the thing that's going to put them right with God. They say what makes a man a Christian is that he lives a good life, that he refrains from sin, that he does good, that he reads his Bible a certain amount every day and prays. That, that makes him a Christian. He's, he's a righteous man. Who's made him? He's made himself righteous. As I say, in our Lord's other picture, where he puts it so plainly, the Pharisee and the publican going up to the temple to pray. Here's a man who goes right to the front and says, I thank thee, O God, that I'm not as other men are, and especially as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods to feed the poor. He's made himself a righteous man. He is righteous as the result of his own endeavors and the result of his own activities. His view of what makes a man a Christian is that he's a moral man, that he's a good man. He's a man who keeps the letter of the law. He's not much interested in anything else, but he's interested in the letter of the law. He's never considered the whole spirit of the law. Oh, no, no, he doesn't delve deeply like that. If he did that, he'd soon be miserable. You see, the whole trouble with the Pharisees, as our Lord points out in the Sermon on the Mount, which he's just preached, is this. The Pharisee gets up and says, I have never committed murder. Thank God. I'm a righteous man. I've never committed murder. Wait a minute, says our Lord. Have you ever said in your heart about another man, you fool? If you have, says our Lord, you've murdered him in your spirit and in your heart. But they never thought of that. As long as they hadn't actually committed physical murder, they were guiltless. They were righteous. The same, you remember, with adultery. Thank God, says the Pharisee, that I'm not like these other people walking the streets of London or wherever they are now. I've never committed adultery. Thank God. My record is clear. Wait a minute, says Christ. You may be clear as regards the letter, but what of the spirit? Have you ever looked at a woman to lust? Have you ever fondled that idea in your mind and heart and imagination? If you have, you've already committed adultery with her in the sight of God. But you see, they didn't do that. 
It was the letter of the law. And as they had not broken the letter of the law, they believed they were righteous. They'd never sinned. They did good. What more? All is well. Righteous. I came not to call people like that, says Christ. They're not the people I'm interested in. These are the people who are utterly hopeless. These are outside. They don't need me. They don't see any need of me. They don't need any physician. They're all. They're righteous. But then take the other aspect of their view of religion. Sacrifice. Go and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy, not sacrifice. I've expounded it to you. Let me apply it. It means this, you see. Their whole view of religion is again something external. And alas, how many such I wonder are there in the church today. This is what religion means to them. External observances. Going to the temple with your offerings and sacrifices. Oh, the prophets in the Old Testament, one after the other, keep on saying that to the children of Israel. This is no good. David, you remember, said it there in that 51st Psalm that we read together at the beginning. It's the thing that's said everywhere. Of necessity, it must be said. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings, the sacrifice of God, or a broken spirit, not simply burnt offerings and sacrifices, not killing your animals, and draining away the blood and taking the meats and the portions that you commanded. That's not it. That's not God's way. But that was the way of the Pharisees. This externalized, mechanized religion. Oh, as long as you go to a place of worship, Sunday morning, you're all right. Go to the Mass, all right. Put you right. Follow certain forms and ceremonies. Nothing more is demanded. And you see, they can be very zealous about this. The Pharisees were extremely zealous people. And I know many people who are very zealous in this respect today. There's no application in their personal lives. Well, they never think about that at all. As long as you've gone to this one service, some of them don't even go every Sunday. Easter Sunday morning perhaps is enough. Puts you right. Or if you may go a bit oftener, that puts you right for the day and you're right with God. Do they ever stop to think about sin and the soul and God and his judgment and Christ and his death? Never for a moment. They've never even thought of it. They've no conception as to what it's all about. Their idea is that if you turn up to the service, you've done your duty as it were. That puts you right. Now that was exactly the attitude of these people. Sacrifice. And of course, by going to a place of worship, you do sacrifice. You missed a good program on the television. You're sacrificing. Oh, well, that puts you right, doesn't it? You see, that's merit. You've done good. You've really sacrificed. Sacrifices. Oh, how this is being practiced by so many at the present time. Religion is reduced to a matter of rules. Nothing of the heart at all. Not even in the mind. There's no understanding. They've never troubled about that. All they do is that they're told if they do certain things that they're religious, they begin to do them. With no understanding, no spiritual application, without any real knowledge. An utterly mechanical view of religion. Now there is the second thing. That is their view of religion. 
And then our Lord goes on to the third point concerning them. They're wrong in their view of themselves. They're wrong in their view of religion. And they're wrong in their view of others. Look at these people. They're amazed and astonished that our Lord should allow publicans and sinners to sit and eat with him and with his disciples. They're amazed at this. They say unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? Their righteous souls were disturbed and upset at this. Why? Well, because from their standpoint, publicans and sinners were entirely outside the pale. They were godless. They were irreligious. They were vile living. They were unrighteous. And there was nothing for them. And here's a man who claims to be a religious teacher mixing with them. The thing is all wrong. They say religion has nothing to do with people like that. Religion is for good people. Religion is for moral people. Religion is for religious people. It's got nothing to do with publicans and sinners. They despised them. And they saw no hope for them. And they were offended by the Son of God because he had anything whatsoever to do with them. Now this to me is perhaps the most crucial test of all. Because you see it is at this point that the failure of this good, moral, respectable, perhaps even religious man is seen most plainly and clearly. Here's the test. And God give us grace to apply this test to ourselves, every one of us at this moment. Have you any hope to give for the failures in life? Is there a member of your family perhaps who has fallen into terrible sin? Drink or something worse? What's your attitude? What's your attitude to the moral failures that you know? Is it one of sympathy? Is it one of understanding? Have you got anything to give them? Have you any hope to offer them? Or is it sheer impatience? Is it one of a kind of righteous indignation that you feel they've let the family down, let you down, let somebody else down? Are you impatient with Annoyed with them. And have nothing to give them. You tell them to pull themselves together. But they can't pull themselves together. Have you anything to give them? Now the whole tragedy about the Pharisee, this type of man with whom I'm dealing, whether he's in the church or outside the church, is that he fails completely when you confront him by the failures of life. A man who's lost his character. A woman who's lost her chastity. Somebody who's fallen into grievous sin. This type of person can't help that other. Why not? Well, for this good reason, you see. All they've got is what they've done themselves. They say, I've lived a good life. I've had to use my willpower. I've had to curb myself. I've had to say no. I've had to take myself in hand. It's been a great fight, but I've done it. And I've succeeded in going the straight and the narrow way. I haven't fallen into sin. And because they've done it themselves, they obviously have got nothing to give anybody else. You may have a very high and a very strong willpower, but you can't give that to another. You may have a very high moral code, but you can't implant that into the mind of another. Here you're dealing with somebody who hasn't got a strong willpower. In fact, it's as weak as water. This poor person has decided, like you many a time, never again to do that thing. 
But when he or she meets a certain type of person, gone in a moment, it's just hopeless. They want to be better, but they can't. And all this type of person can say to them is, well, you should pull yourself together. You know it's wrong. Why don't you pull yourself? Where's your sense of honor? But it's of no value. Indeed, this kind of person, as I say, in the last analysis, has nothing whatsoever to give to the failures in life. Is just impatient with them, can but condemn them, and has no message to give, no principle to offer, no hope to hold out the fall. There are the characteristics of these people according to our blessed Lord himself. And this is what he says about them. I have not come to call the righteous. Well, you know what you are, my friend. But if what I've been saying applies to you, take it from me. The Son of God tonight has got nothing to say to you except that you're lost, you're damned of all people in the universe. You are the furthest away from him. I'm speaking deliberately. You are the furthest away from him in the whole universe because you're a Pharisee. But thank God, let me turn to the second principle. Let me describe to you the people whom he does call. Let me tell you something of the people and the characteristics of the people to whom he does speak. Let me describe to you the people for whose sake he came from heaven to earth. I came, he says. I am come. Not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, he's interested in these. Who are these? Well, let me hold before you his own description of them. In essence, it comes to this. These are the people who are ready to listen to him. These are the people who are always crowded after him. You see, Matthew invites him into the house. What, said the publican? Is he going into the house of Matthew? Is he ready to talk to Matthew? If he's ready to talk to Matthew, he's ready to talk to me. And then the sinners looked on. Are those publicans going in? Is he interested in them? If he's interested in them, he must be interested in me. They crowded him. Publicans and sinners. Here are the people to whom Christ speaks. Let's take his own words. The first characteristic is that they know that they're sick. They that are whole have no need of a physician. But they that are sick. What's he talking about? What he means is this. He is interested in people who know that they're morally and spiritually ill. The people that he's come to call and in whom he's really interested are those who know that there's a running sore in their souls. The people he's interested in are the people who know that they're weak, that they're diseased, that they're twisted, that they're perverted, that there's something wrong in their very innermost parts. They're the people described by David as he talks about himself in that 51st Psalm. They're people who are troubled about themselves. They say, isn't there a doctor? Isn't there a physician? Isn't there somebody who can help me somewhere? I'm an ill man. I'm sick. What do they mean by that? Well, they say, I've got no strength. The will is present with me, but how to perform, I know not. I delight in the law of God in the inner man, but I find another law in my members. You know, says the man, I'm paralyzed. I don't understand myself. I'm an ill man. I want to do the right, but I do the wrong. I don't want to sin, but I keep on doing it. What's the matter with me? I seem to have lost my strength. I haven't got willpower. I'm ill. Is there nobody who can heal me? He knows he's sick. 
He knows he needs help, healing. My dear friend, have you ever realized that you are sick in soul, sick in spirit? Have you ever felt alarmed about yourself? You've felt alarmed about your physical ill health. Have you ever felt alarmed about the ill health, the disease of your soul? Do you know what it is sometimes to be unable to sleep as you think about the rottenness that is within you? How you can be so selfish. How you can be so inconsiderate. How you can be so unkind, so ungrateful, so jealous, so envious, so spiteful. Does it worry you? Do you say there must be a cancer? There must be a foul abscess in me. There's filth in me. Where does it come from? Why should I be like this? Why am I so diseased in my soul? Have you ever felt it? Those are the people for whom Christ has come. The people who feel that they're failures in life. That there's no soundness in them. That they're rotten from their head to their feet. That in their very heart there is ugliness and blackness and darkness and foulness. They say, where do all these things come from? Why am I thus? Sick. But go on to his second term. I am not come to call the righteous but sinners. These people accept his terms. They say he's quite right when he says I'm sick. I am sick and terribly sick. But I'm also a sinner. What does this mean? It's much more serious than sickness. To be a sinner is much worse than to be sick. Why? Well, for this reason. That here is something that links me to God. Being sick just means that I don't function as I believe I ought to function as a man. But when I'm told I'm a sinner, it's much worse than that. Here my whole relationship to God is involved. David saw it. You see, David understood. He said, you know, the trouble about this thing I've done is this. Not merely that I've murdered a man in order that I might have his wife. That's a terrible thing in itself. Not merely that I'm a creature of lust that I'm so governed by lust, that I'm so filthy and vile and ill and sick, that when I see a woman bathing on top of her house, that though she's another man's wife, I must have her. That's not the main trouble with me, says David. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Here's the terrible thing. Not that I'm failing as a man, but that I'm not living as the almighty God who made me, intended me to live. That's the terrible thing. The prodigal son saw it, you see. He saw he'd been a fool. I know that's the consciousness of sickness. But what worried him was this, that he'd sinned against his father. And not only that, father, I have sinned against him. And before thy face, him, God is involved. And the trouble with this man is that he realizes not only that he's sick, but that he's offended the God who made him. He's broken God's law. That's the terrible thing about it after all. The trouble about the world is not simply that it's sick, but that it's breaking God's laws. That it's desecrating God's sanctities. This is sin. And that as a consequence it's under the wrath 
and the condemnation of God and worthy of punishment. Very well, sick and sinner, but then what's the view of religion taken by these people? Oh, how different it is from the others. It isn't that I save myself by living a good life. I turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do a lot of good and I'm going to stop. Never. What is it? Well, here it is. You notice the words? I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To what? To live a good life. To attend a place of worship. To start doing good. No, no. To object to war. And to show a righteous indignation. Not at all. To repentance. Christ doesn't call you to do anything positive first. He calls you first to something negative, And he calls it repentance. I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. What's this? Repentance just means sorrow for sin. A realization that you're an evil person. That there's no good in you at all. That in you, in your flesh, dwelleth no good thing. To repent means this. That you not only recognize that you are a sinner, that you condemn yourself for it. That you admit it to yourself, you admit it to God. You say that you deserve punishment. And far from resenting a sermon about sin, you say it's absolutely true. Far from feeling annoyed because I say that you're rotten at the heart. You say you're perfectly right. If you only knew more about me, you'd say it's still more. You've got nothing to say for yourself. That's repentance. The man who repents is a man who says, yes, I'm a vile sinner. Wash me with hyssop. Create within me a clean heart. Repentance means that you've got a broken heart because of your sinfulness, your unworthiness, your wrong attitude towards God. Repentance. Have you ever repented, my friend? But you say, I was always brought up in a religious home. I was always taken to a place of worship. I've always believed in God. I don't care what you believe, nor how you were brought up, but I am here to say this. That if you have not repented at some time or another, you are not only not a Christian, but you're a Pharisee. The finest Christians that the world has ever known have always been the ones that have been most conscious of sin. Look at the Apostle Paul. Look at our hymns. Look at a good godly man like Charles Wesley, who'd always been brought up in a religious home. He says, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever had a sense of sin? Have you ever condemned yourself? Have you ever said God would be just if he sent me to hell? I deserve nothing better. If you've never seen your sinfulness, if you've never repented, you cannot be a Christian. It's impossible. If you say you know God, well, you've seen yourself as a sinner. The nearer you get to God, the more you're aware of your sin. If you've ever seen Christ, you must have seen yourself as a sinner. You've said with Peter, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Repentance. And the final thing, of course, is the acknowledgement of the need of mercy. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. The man who's truly repented, the man who's aware that he's sick and that he's a sinner and who repents, 
is a man who sees absolutely clearly that it doesn't matter what he does, he can never put himself right. Though my zeal, could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Now this is absolutely basic, my friend. This man who is to be blessed by Christ is a man who realizes that he can do nothing at all about his salvation. Nothing. He no longer relies upon his goodness, positive and negative. He no longer relies upon his religion. He relies upon nothing in himself and nothing that he can do. He simply cries out and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing else. Or with David, he puts it, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. He says there's only one hope for me, and that is that there is mercy with God, and he casts himself upon the mercy of God unreservedly as his only hope. The man who is to be blessed is the man who is ready to receive the mercy of God as a pauper. Who is ready to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. He admits He's got nothing. He's a pauper in a spiritual sense. He's ready to receive it as the free gift of God's grace. In spite of himself, all of God and nothing from himself. That's his position. Repentance and acceptance of mercy. And oh, how privileged and glad I am to be able to say this to you. That if you, my friend, have realized that you're sick and that you're a sinner and that your only hope is mercy, do you know what he'll tell you? He'll tell you this. He will tell you that he came from heaven into this world in order to save you. I am come, who is the Son of God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. I am come, I came from heaven to earth, he said, to save you, to give you the mercy that you need. Because of your failure, I am come. I'm come to call you. I'm come to tell you that I've taken your sins upon myself. That I came into this world in order to die for you. I came to receive your punishment. That's what happened to me on the cross. And because I received your punishment, I offer you freely, with nothing at all, without money and without price, the pardon of God, the reconciliation to God, sonship of God, and heirship of eternal bliss. I am come for you. Not for that righteous, self-satisfied man. Not for that good religious man. That mere church member. No, no, I haven't come for him. I've come for you. Whatever you are. In your utter helplessness and hopelessness. In your sickness, in your soreness. In your depth of sin and shame. I've come for you. I've left the courts of glory for you. 
And oh, am I making it plain. There is none too bad. This whole story proves it. Publicans are received. Sinners are received. The very last people you thought the Son of God would ever mix with, he's come for them. You see, it doesn't depend upon us at all. It depends entirely upon him. He didn't come to tell us to save ourselves. He came to save us. It's his action that saves us. Nothing that we do. We are the paupers that just receive it as a free gift. It's all in Christ. It's all his action. He's come. He lived. He died. He rose again. He's done it. And he gives it to you and to me as a free gift. And because it is the free gift of God's grace, You can never be too bad for this. He doesn't ask a halfpenny from you. Not a farthing. Nothing. He doesn't ask a scrap of righteousness. He gives it all. And all he asks of you is that realizing your need, your vileness, you are desert of hell. That you forfeited every claim on the love of God, realizing all that. That you believe him when he tells you that he has come in order to call you to repentance and then to give you the forgiveness that you need. He's come to wash you, to cleanse you in your inner parts as well as externally and to make you a child of God. And an heir of his own eternal glory. I am not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. Have you known that you are a sinner and sick? Have you repented? My dear friend, if you haven't seen these truths... Pray God to open your understanding by his blessed spirit. You're desperate. You're outside. And you'll remain outside. Ask him to make you see these things. And then go to him as a suppliant, crying for mercy. And you'll never go in vain. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Though you're the vilest of publicans, You're though you're the most blatant, fragrant, flagrant sinner in the whole of this city of London tonight. It doesn't matter. He has come to call such. Come to him and coming. Be saved. Amen.